Welcome to episode 198 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, uh, we're joined for the interview by Shane Harris, the national security correspondent for some damn media outlet or another. And now it's the Washington Post, even though we're talking about an article that you wrote for the Wall Street Journal. I can't keep a job. Apparently not. Uh, well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, um, and I hope that uh, you're taking a big chunk out of Bezos is $105 billion. <laughs> uh, all right. And, and for the news roundup, we have Alan Cohn, formerly the Assistant Secretary for Strategy at DHS, now of counsel at Steptoe. Brian Egan, a Steptoe partner in our international regulation and compliance practice, who was formerly the uh, legal advisor for, uh, to the State Department and to the National Security Council. Uh, welcome, Brian. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, and uh, uh, Nicholas Weaver, uh, uh, the senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer in the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley. Uh, uh, Nick, are, are you going to consolidate these titles at some point? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so these are really quite different things, the Computer Science Institute and the Computer Science Department. Yeah, so the department, my position is entirely about teaching. Uh, my position at ICSI is all about uh, re- basic research. Okay, which together is what faculty are supposed to do. So I, it's, uh, I'm... I'm uh, surprised that they insist on keeping it separate, but I will not uh, uh, press further. I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and the record holder for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So we ought to jump right in. Uh, um, the House of Representatives, and probably by the time you hear this podcast, the Senate um, uh, will have voted on extending Section 702. The House did it, you know, more or less um, taking the um, adoption of 702 in stride. There was an effort by Justin Amash, the unspeakable Justin Amash, uh, I and a bunch of Democrats to... Um, seriously undercut the program by attacking searches of the database that uh, of collected uh, communications. That failed by about 60 votes, if I remember right. Uh, and then uh, uh, more or less the House Intelligence Committee bill was adopted. Uh, it has some things that trim the uh, uh, 702 um, but um, they allow for the possibility of a bouts collection being revived, and uh, um, the restriction on searches in the 702 collected uh, communication database is limited to imposing a warrant requirement on um, FBI criminal searches. Uh, anybody can search it and discover that they've got something, that there's something in it, but then if they're pursuing a criminal case, they have to go get a warrant. That's at least how I read it. That seems to be pretty much what the uh, uh, the House had been proposing. Alan? No, I think that's a good summary. Um, it was interesting to see the split of, uh, you had 58 Republicans joining 125 Democrats on the side of, Passing the and that's, a, that's a high for the, uh, the, the you know the um, paranoia caucus in the Republican <laughs> Party. Um, uh, so that's a little disappointing. It was still su- 
uh, I thought it was pretty good that, that we got as many Democrats. Well, but that's the thing. It's just about as many Democrats came over and uh, and supported the Republicans. So, you, so in a sense, it's more of this example of it's not necessarily a Republican versus Democratic issue. Um, you also had the the um, uh, the amusing occurrence that both uh, President Trump and Edward Snowden seem to be tweeting on the same side of the bill oh, for a while. So, yes, uh, uh, you know that was the best part of the whole thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it may be that it only could pass because Trump was saying, "Hey, look, I've got something shiny, and you can yell at me and, and just vote for this, and then make fun of me, and and no one will." It care. was a negotiating tactic. I, I, no, no, it was, it was just. Uh, you know, the man watches Fox and Friends, and Judge Napolitano said something rude about the bill. He said, "Yeah, that's it. That's that's they hate me." <laughs> it's that bill. It's that wiretapping bill they used again. Interesting that you know they turned him around in what less than two hours. Yeah, I think in fact in the post we had a piece of like the one hundred one minute scramble to get him to correct this and remind him that no, 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 you're actually in favor of this. Remember, the White House just issued a statement yesterday, in fact, saying this bill saves lives. Uh, so that was the then what prompted the corrective tweet where he said, you know, just to be clear, we're fixing the unmasking problem. That's what I meant. The rest of the bill is good. <laughs> it, was, it was sort of, just to continue what I was saying, 101 minutes. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think uh, General Kelly and some others got involved and had to explain why the first tweet was, as Paul Ryan has taken saying, unhelpful so, in a different context. So the... The second tweet, though, was it, it felt Trumpish, don't, didn't you think? Yeah, I mean, it was. It was. I will say, it was saying, you know, like what I really meant was, and it was as if it was not acknowledging any inconsistency right. in position. And and uh, I, General I, Kelly's getting better at this. I, I this, this is this is what my observation is that it's no longer be, that possible to be absolutely sure that this is Trump unfiltered. Uh, they've they've learned to sound like Trump unfiltered, even <laughs> as they filter him. <laughs> Very interesting. Except that the Trump unfiltered correlates so well with what's on Fox and Friends. That's how you tell the difference. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, I have resisted both following uh, the real Donald J. Trump uh, and watching Fox and Friends, but I, maybe I'm going to have to do that. Uh, in fact, I may, I may, I may talk to Steptoe. We, of course, run CNN. Uh, God help us uh, on all of our uh, in-house uh, stations. But we really should. I should make the point that uh, it's it's an important part of our government affairs practice to know what. Fox and Friends is saying at 7 in the morning. It's becoming an important part of policy, actually. <laughs> Although I think we may have to um, give those poor folks hazard pay as well. So. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's like, like, like the, uh, the people who uh, uh, at Twitter who are paid to look at dick pics. Uh, uh, you know, the <laughs> well, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> All right. Uh, so... Um, Another of my favorite companies, uh, Apple, uh, is in the process of handing off all of its cloud storage to another company in China uh, so that Apple uh, will not have will not be the only company that has access to the stored uh, uh, Apple files that uh, people send to the uh, to the cloud, to, um, and they managed um, to say. Uh, uh, to send out notices to a whole bunch of people who didn't have China accounts that their stuff was going to be stored in China as well, which, of course, predictably produced a, a massive reaction uh, and a sheepish statement by Apple that uh, they didn't really mean it. It was just a mistake. Uh, um, uh, Nick, um, 
if if they can make the mistake in sending out the email, do you think they could also make the mistake in deciding whose backup is going to be stored in China? I don't think quite as much because there tend to be two different systems. But what strikes me is that this hasn't become a more common thing. Because I remember about a year and a half ago, Microsoft teamed up with Deutsche Telekom to do a data center in Germany owned by Deutsche Telekom, specifically so. Uh, basically, it's every country on the earth hates 702 because that means the U.S. has access, but loves that access for themselves. So forcing companies to hold the data locally, I think is an inevitable trend. Don't you think? I mean, it's, it's, uh, the, the, the problem I think is it's expensive. And so you have to have a lot of data before it becomes uh, uh, cost effective to, to do that. Maybe Germany has that data. My impression is that uh, Brazil tried it and gave up. Um, uh, Russia is trying it, but uh, uh, it, its volume is not enormous. Uh, so I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I'm quite confident that the Netherlands is never going to be able to do it or, or Croatia. Um, uh, but you're right. It, uh, uh, it's, it's the sweetest of all possible deals for uh, uh, law enforcement in other countries. You get to stand up for privacy and, and crusade uh, arm in arm with Edward Snowden while at the same time massively increasing your own access to the uh, uh, data of your citizens. Of course. What could be better? <laughs> I, I, so, Nick, is there any way you can tell if you're an Apple user, I'm not, so not surprisingly, um, it, where your data is being stored. I mean, uh, suppose you 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 subscribe to the Baker cynical view that um, Apple is sloppy about this because they don't really care. Um, if uh, if you wanted to know for sure that your data was being stored someplace other than the, uh, China, could you tell? Unfortunately, not. But that's the case for everything. So, if anything, the key is on, like, the Apple phones is which version of the App Store do you have? So, Apple has segregated their ecology for China significantly different from everybody else. And that's what they're using to distinguish where your data is stored is basically what's your App Store. Yeah. Okay. So, a good first pass would be... To, to ask yourself, which app store am I in? And, and that is pretty obvious. Uh, I, and uh, if you're in a Chinese app store, then you're probably having all your data uh, stored in China as well. Okay. Uh, Supreme Court is is going for a three-peat on uh, Internet sales tax uh, data. I, I remember, God, I, I feel old now. I remember when this came up. In 1992, uh, uh, in the Quill against North Dakota case, uh, uh, and that was a rerun of Bellis Hess from the 60s, where they had said, "No, no, you uh, you can't collect, uh, uh, you can't force companies to collect sales tax unless the companies actually have like uh, boots on the ground in your uh, in your jurisdiction," and. North Dakota said, oh, you can't really mean that in an Internet, uh, and more importantly, at the time, a catalog sales uh, era. 
And the court said, yeah, we did mean it, uh, and we're not going to change it, you know, because Congress can, can change it if they want to. Uh, and now it looks as though, you know, it's 25 more years have gone by, or they're going to look at it again. They are. And so this time it's South Dakota. Uh, <laughs> well, there you go. You know, so uh, with the credit card industry kind of, you know, um, uh, I don't know, maybe not generating what they're looking, looking for, um, went ahead and passed a law, you know, that disregards the physical presence test and just says, look, if you have more than $100,000 in annual sales in the state, you got to pay a 4.5% tax on purchases, and then you got to collect it whether you have people here or not. Um, and uh, and so you got retailers like Wayfair and Overstock and Newegg on the other side opposing it. And in the background, you have Amazon, who hasn't waited. Which has yet. actually probably, at this point, they used to be enthusiastic about this doctrine, and about... Ten years ago, they they decided no, we're just going to collect the tax. We're going to have facilities everywhere, and they they clearly now do uh, f- for fulfillment, if nothing else. Uh, and so, I would have thought they actually might kind of quietly support taxation because you know they won't have as much competition from overstock and places like that. Well, but remember, they have a lot of third party sellers on their site, and their perspective has been kind of you look, you do what you want to do. And so endorsement of a framework would require them to then become a little more active in the, in that. But what I loved about this case, and I guess maybe, maybe, uh, you had the same, um, frisson back in 1992 is that, of course, this is a case involving the dormant commerce clause. Yeah, which is dormant as hell these yeah. days. <laughs> <laughs> and so it should, uh, you know, cause unsettling flashbacks for all the lawyers thinking about those agonizing weeks in con law when you're forced to try to figure out what that is. Um, and what, and it's surprisingly controversial now among conservative mm-hmm. jurists, right? Mm-hmm. Because it feels like you just made up a doctrine to strike down state laws, uh, and you divined whether this was, um, economically inappropriate behavior for a particular state to do, which does feel pretty intrusive, although it, it all made sense when we were in law school. Well, it's one of those things, well, after a couple of weeks, <laughs> a couple of beers, I think, it, uh, yeah, you can kind of wrap your mind around. It, but it does kind of get into this question of, of you know, the, the what is the way in which you uh, you look at interstate commerce in a in a world in which state boundaries don't really matter all that much. And so you have Justices Kennedy and Gorsuch questioning the validity uh, of Quill, and of course you have Justice Thomas questioning the validity of the Dormant Commerce Clause concept. So they're down. The, the, so, you know, uh, uh, South Dakota's up three votes already. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> although I think part of this, is you're, they're going to be saying, "Look, you've said twice this is the rule, and you've said twice to Congress if you want to change it, just change it." And Congress has not changed it. So why would you? change your mind when everybody has built their businesses on the assumption that this is the law. Right. So that'll be the fight. Uh, uh, you know, race judicata and stare decisis <laughs> versus uh, um, the enthusiasm for law reform on the right. Uh, uh, and the fact that you only have three representatives in Congress. So from the South Dakota perspective. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess that's right. Uh, so they could, they might, they might, they might win in the Senate, but they ain't going to win in the House. Uh, all right. So I, I should begin this next item with a bit of an apology to Uber because I had said uh, that you know when they paid $100,000 to the guy who found these staggering holes in their uh, um, uh, security and had access to all of the uh, driver's licenses of all their drivers etc cetera, etc cetera, that they had kind of 
reached out to stick a payment under the rubric of bug bounty uh, uh, to the uh, to the hacker. But the New York Times did a really nice, detailed. I think this was Nicole Perlroth, uh, um, a, a nice detailed story uh, that somebody handed her all the emails, so it was easy to do. Um, a that showed that this was probably from the starts an effort to um, claim a bug bounty, although maybe a big one. Uh, and you know, maybe the decision to treat it as a scandal was more a question of corporate politics than a question of whether that was uh, uh, the wrong call by the the, the Uber security office. Uh, at least that's the, the question I got from, from looking at that. Uh, uh, and Nick, did you have that same feeling? Yeah, and it really enforces that um, bug bounties are actually something that are almost one of those don't try this at home. There's a couple of professional companies that specialize in handling all these logistics and the like. And if Uber had done a better job, this would have never been a scandal at all. So, and, and I, I, we had uh, uh, a, a Martin Mikos on to talk about that uh, from Hacker One, uh, and uh, he talked about bug bounty programs. And indeed, there was a bug bounty program through Hacker One at Uber, and the security guys kept trying to push this uh, uh, fellow who was disclosing the bug into going through that program, and he didn't want to do it. Um, I, but uh, So it was a more of a gray area than you would think, but I agree with you. Um, what this shows is it's really fraught with risk for both the hacker and the company to wing it in this area. Agreed. And but I, I just to slightly retract the apology. Uh, if you wondered why people would think the worst of Uber, you only have to look at the story about their Ripley software. This is uh, this is uh, Ripley, as in uh, Sigourney Weaver uh, in Aliens, uh, um, in which. After the entire expeditionary force is slaughtered by aliens, uh, she says uh, the only solution is to nuke it from orbit. Uh, uh, and that's exactly what Uber seems to have been doing when they were raided look, by governments looking for evidence of misbehavior. They had a whole, they had a kind of safe word that's, uh, that, that could be transmitted on a special channel that led them to just lock everything, nuke it all, pull it back uh, to uh, to Silicon Valley, and then say to the Canadian or whoever uh, uh, was doing the investigation, um, yeah, you don't seem to have anything, do you? Uh, it, it was, as, as some several people in the, the uh, story pointed out, borderline obstruction of justice. I mean, if, if the Trump White House had done it, we all would know it was obstruction of justice. You wouldn't advise your clients of this <laughs> mitigation procedure. This, this is, you know, I'm confident that this was carefully lawyered uh, and then carelessly implemented. <laughs> Maybe the same people that are doing the Hawaii <laughs> missile drill uh, warnings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, Sheila Jackson Lee, I, you know, this is the first time I've said something nice about Sheila Jackson Lee on this uh, uh, podcast, but she has introduced a bill and got it past the house uh it's like a paragraph and a half long and it's you know not terrible 
Uh, it says basically that VE vulnerability equities program that you have, tell us what the rules are, and then in the classified annex, if you have to, tell us how you've applied it. Uh, uh, so it's a basically calling for a report to Congress. Uh, I, uh, Brian Allen, I, uh, you know, there there may be things wrong with the vulnerability equity process, and legislating it would almost certainly make them worse. But a report to Congress that says here's our rules and this is how we do it is probably the most modest thing Congress could have done. Yeah, it's very consistent with where the White House and Rob Joyce has been a few months ago. You'll remember he said, we want to be more transparent about the vulnerabilities uh, review process. So Congress is basically saying, we want you to be more transparent too. So the report, I don't know if it will be made public or not, but it it could be interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, it's an elegant way of approaching what would otherwise be a – you know, executive branch prerogative White House coordination process is to hook it to the provisions in the Homeland Security Act yeah. that say that the secretary is supposed to coordinate about reporting vulnerabilities. And so, in a sense, we're not asking you to report on the vulnerabilities equities process because we recognize that's a, you know, that's an executive branch, you know, EOP prerogative uh, kind of thing. We're just asking you to report on this provision of the Homeland Security Act about how you, about what you're doing. Elegant little solution brings it nicely under the jurisdiction of the Homeland Security Committee and the type of thing that appeals to Chairman McCall and, and others about, you know, ways that they can build on the legislative foundation and build out a, a record of, um, of legislation in the area. So. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, the Deputy Attorney General, uh, Rosenstein, has given another speech uh, in which he closed by talking about the need for responsible um, security, from by which he meant accessible security uh, 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 from Silicon Valley. I, I, uh, Alan, I don't know what you thought. It was basically the pitch that we've heard from law enforcement for the last five years, except like for one paragraph where he actually talked about things that companies do um, that aren't called backdoors, but which would effectively give uh, the government access to communications when they had a warrant. Um, And so he's creeping up, I think, on actually proposing solutions as opposed to just saying, here's the principle, you figure out how to do it. Well, I think that's right, although um, if you were talking about a three-peat on the uh, Internet sales tax question, then I think we're, we're at least at that here. Um, I think that's right. I think that you hear the three-peat same... Three-peat defeat, uh, right. you know, since nothing has happened yet. <laughs> True. Um, that, uh, And you hear the same thing from, um, from Chris Ray at FBI. Um, uh, you know... It's possible that Rosenstein goes down the road and and kind of proposes along the lines that he said in the speech. It also seems a lot like kind of, you know, let's pick up this drum and start beating it again. Yes. That, he, he, you know, he's entitled to feel strongly about this. Uh, he hears about the cases they can't make and the bad guys they can't put in jail. Um, and um, he's decided that there's a good intellectual case and he's... Um, an intellectually robust uh, lawyer, uh, so he's going to keep keep making the uh, the pitch. Uh, 
Uh, and I guess that is different. We, we heard this more from the FBI than from the Justice Department in the last administration. Yes, and I think it's more appropriate coming from the Justice Department than the FBI. The FBI is supposed to take this position from an operational perspective, but the Justice Department is really, you know, where the, the policymaking is supposed to come from. And so, uh, no, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong or inappropriate with the, the Deputy Attorney General Proposing this is actually not surprising. The question is, you know, is this the right way to go on this issue? And so we'll just have to see, and we'll see if um, if they do as well as the Dakotas uh, have done on the on the sales tax issue. So Nick, I, this was the most 21st century headline of the week. Uh, Russia says our naval base was attacked by swarms of drones, and we bought them off with anti-aircraft and cyber weapons. Um, uh, it was uh, it was kind of remarkable. They basically were attacked by these very large, um, as uh, at least for people who are used to drones being about a foot and a half in diameter, uh, these large uh, um, uh, drones, and they seem to have hacked them after they got tired of trying to shoot them down with anti-aircraft. Well, this is just the beginning. So... As far as we can tell, the Daily Beast did some great reporting on where these came from, and it basically is a, a arms merchant-type factory on the Syrian border. It looks like lawnmower engines, actually. Wow. And these were really more like dumb cruise missiles than true drones. So um, – what they could do is they were flying high, you could shoot them down, they were targeted by GPS, so you drive their GPS crazy, they drop from the sky, have a nice day. This is all fine and good, this go around. My worry is this is something that's going to get much more common, much cheaper, and so what happens when the next group, a year from now, is flying five feet off the ground, so you can't shoot it down with an anti-aircraft gun. And when you try to jam it, it goes into an autonomous mode, best described as kill all humans. Yeah, that's so, that's, that's a welcome. <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> yeah, this is basically the equivalent of the pre-World War One, where some guy decided to drop a couple of grenades outside a spotter plane. This oh, is. That was that was this that was like three dark. years three years after the Wright brothers fly. This guy is cruising around in some Libyan battle between Italy and somebody or other, uh, dropping pineapple uh, grenades out of his mm. uh, out of his plane. Uh, yeah, it, it 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 makes you realize that all technologies end up as uh, war fighting technologies sooner or later, and usually sooner. Uh, anyway, that was it was a remarkable thing, and I I note uh, that. Uh, I actually was uh, briefly tempted to buy a autonomous, self-guided, GPS-enabled lawnmower, uh, and but apparently I was outbid by these guys in Syria. Uh, okay, um, CFIUS reform. We've had now what two sets of hearings. Uh, uh, Brian, uh, where is this going? 
Well, the interesting, so the House uh, Financial Services Committee had a hearing last week and really focused substantively on an issue that I think the tech sector is going to be focused on in the next few months, which is the expansion of CFIUS jurisdiction to transactions involving critical technology companies where IP and associated support is provided to a foreign person in any means. Right. So potentially very broad expansion of CFIUS where... Well, this is the deemed export rule weaponized. Exactly, on steroids uh, and re-export rule and then every other export you can think of related technology to which tech companies are saying... Why do we have all these export control rules if we're also going to be subject to CFIUS jurisdiction for the same thing? And I, I happen to think that's a fair question. Now, some in this hearing and elsewhere have said, well, the export control system is broken. There are gaps. It's too slow. Um, but I think you've, you've got to figure out a way to reconcile these two systems without completely killing CFIUS because filings could go up exponentially if this thing is uh, implemented in the way that it could be under the draft bill. So that's going to be one of the big debating points over this, uh, over the Cornyn bill, uh, uh, how and whether this can be made to work. Uh, uh, clearly, DOD thinks that it hasn't slowed down technologies, and probably because it says, you know, we can't identify whether it's dual-use technology or not. But if it's sufficiently advanced, sooner or later it will be dual use, as we just discussed. Right. That's uh, right. And so they, they worry about transfers without necessarily knowing exactly what the military use will be. That's right. But <laughs> that might lead you to question why we have any ex- export controls that are uh, unrestricted involving technology at all. I mean, Yeah, but, care- but careful what you wish for. Yeah. That, 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 that you could end up transferring all of the export control decisions to Team Telecom. That is true, yes. Uh, to the export control reform 180 degrees backwards. So... All right. And last, before we get to our interview, I just wanted to uh, uh, beat my favorite, uh, well, one of my favorite uh, uh, horses, uh, uh, Twitter, um, which apparently is allowing people to run ads, basically promoted tweets uh, to people that pretend to be from Twitter and take you to a, a site where you're supposed to log on to your Twitter account for some benefit or other, which are just run by hackers so they can steal all your uh, uh, Twitter credentials. And Twitter's unable or unwilling to police this behavior because it's going on, been going on for years. This is uh, Baker's theory of the future of Silicon Valley is you should not look at the rich companies like Microsoft or Google or Apple to determine what our future is going to be. But look at the ones that are really hurting, that are kind of just scraping by, trying to monetize everything, uh, uh, not in a position to do anything that doesn't add to the bottom line, like Yahoo used to be, uh, like Twitter today. Uh, and this is what you get. You get totally crap security uh, from people who uh, who don't think that providing better security is actually going to produce more benefits uh, uh, for the bottom line. Sad. I would add that it's also a symptom of the great sin of Silicon Valley advertising and the refusal to hire people. Yes. That whenever you have a system where you have advertising – and the advertising is not reviewed by people always, you will get abusive ads. This is why ad blockers are a security measure. It's not an annoyance measure. 
because you have so many malicious ads out there for all sorts of things. And this is just Twitter experiencing the same grief everybody else does. Yeah, but they can't afford to hire 5,000 Filipinos to, to the, the way Facebook has to do content uh, checks because uh, uh, they don't have the revenue to do that. I noticed, I noticed that they also are way behind in their um, advertising transparency center that they promised us uh, conveniently just in front of their testimony to the Senate about uh, uh, Russia. And they said, oh, yeah, we got this uh, groundbreaking best in the uh, uh, industry transparency center that's just around the corner. Uh, that was uh, October, I think. It's still just around the corner, apparently. Uh, um, so um, maybe we'll occasionally revisit this to ask, where the hell is Twitter's ad transparency <laughs> center? All right. Um, uh, this seems to be a, a, a great um, uh, international section, and that's why I'm glad that Shane is here in his new capacity uh, um, to talk about the uh, reporting he did in his old capacity. Uh, um, a, you wrote a great story about Kaspersky mm-hmm. and how Kaspersky became the... Uh, 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 the bete noir of the Department of Homeland Security and the government. Uh, and I guess I came away not necessarily with more sympathy for Kaspersky because I've always had some sympathy for him, uh, but with none of my suspicions about how Kaspersky might have been used eased in any way. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, when we started reporting on this story, it was we were uh, kind of reporting on one particular incident that occurred <clears throat> with someone who was working at the NSA a few years back who removed classified information from his workplace where he worked at, a, uh, at the agency, which was the first sort of great mortal sin. Uh, but then well, took I- it- Ironically, that doesn't actually distinguish him among the other defendants. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So this is sort of like, so that's in, you know, in a small but exclusive, you know, not too exclusive group, I guess. Um, but, you know, takes this information home and, as our reporting showed, put it on a computer that was running Kaspersky, and what officials concluded was that Kaspersky, acting like antivirus software does, which is to scan your computer, your hard drive, for uh, malicious files, uh, did this and seized on information that was of great interest to the Russian intelligence services, and it was extracted. And I used the passive voice there because because then the question became, well, was Kaspersky doing this on its own? Had it been hijacked uh, by the Russian security services without its knowledge? Was it being pressured to do this? And those questions really led us to investigate, well, what is sort of the history of you the U.S. intelligence community's concern about Kaspersky and what do they think? And what you come away with is this feeling, I think, shared more actually by, we found, intelligence community people than necessarily people who were in the White House and the Obama administration, that Kaspersky, even if it was not the one doing the extraction and the scanning of people's computers certainly must have had, you know, Russians either sitting in the office doing it from the FSB or the GRU or knew well that they were doing it and really didn't buy the idea that Kaspersky was unwitting in all of this. Um, and it sort of builds up to this final uh, decision by the Homeland Security Department to take the pretty extraordinary step of banning the software from use across all federal government agencies. And, you know, it, it's one of these cases where I don't, I honestly don't 
don't know if the community actually has the smoking gun even to their satisfaction that proves this is how they did it, this is when they did it, this is who we how we know Eugene Kaspersky authorized it. But they clearly have come away convinced that this technology is being used as a tool for espionage. And Kaspersky should be doing more about that than it apparently is to the satisfaction of the U.S. government. So I, there were a couple of things that weren't in your story that I remembered um, in other stories of the time, and I wondered whether you had decided they weren't fully credible or you just weren't able to get any more information on them. But there was a suggestion uh, at one point that in addition to spotting the malware, um, there were some... U.S. intelligence-related names and keywords that were being sent out by Kaspersky saying, do you have any of this on your hard drive? Because, of course, you know, if you use an antivirus today, you're using a very different product than you used to. It used to be it was just gave you a bunch of signatures and you rejected things that matched those signatures, and that more or less failed by 2005, and people began saying, we have to dynamically update all of the signatures. We have to see everything that's coming into everybody's computer so that we can spot the malware early, uh, which means they basically had to see every document you downloaded, uh, every bit and byte that uh, uh, was stored on your uh, hard drive, uh, and they could search it. So um, you got to trust your antivirus provider, uh, and it would be a violation of the unwritten contract with the antivirus uh, uh, provider if they're searching for social security numbers or PRISM uh, right. Uh, keywords. Right? right, right, that's right. So, And my memory was that um, there was a suggestion that maybe the government had set up a bunch of honeypots running Kaspersky and holding things that had these magic words in them yep. uh, to see if um, the gov- the uh, uh, Russian government or Kaspersky would search those as well. Yeah, so this most recent story we did was actually kind of the, the third in this uh, series, but we had done some reporting earlier on that. And what what our sources told us was that they determined that Kaspersky was essentially being modified, if you like, uh, to search for words like top secret and potentially to search for code names of programs. Now, how they knew what to look for, I mean, I don't know we've determined that, but there's been a lot of secret code names of programs that have been put on the Internet recently. Um, so that might be a place where you would love to start. Um, uh, and that this was, of course, not precisely how antivirus software is supposed to work. And, they, and we were told that there were instances in which uh, uh, certain agencies set up these computers essentially to look like the kinds of targets that they believed Kaspersky was being used to go after. And I, I remember talking to one person in the community who said, you know, he sat there and watched essentially as this thing started running on the computer and extracting files in a way that to him, and we didn't really get into this much in, in the story, um, largely for just for sake of space, but what was fascinating is he said it was done in such a way that this person who was, you know, a professional computer security professional uh, suggested to him that this was being done with some one behind it. It just, it, it didn't look so, automated. Somebody right there. Yeah, it, it just he was watching the guy. Yeah, it didn't seem to him that it appeared automated. And he was a little bit reluctant, I think, for good reason to go too much more deeply into it. <clears throat> but it was enough that he walked away believing uh, from his vantage point that this was 
a, a deliberate use of Kaspersky, and it was not simply that it had been turned on to, say, search for all kinds of files that might be associated with uh, a group that they discovered a few years ago that they, they dubbed the Equation Group, right. which we reported is actually the NSA. I mean, important to remember from Kaspersky's point of view, you know, if there is NSA built and used malware out there, it they're wants to detect to that it. too. Yes. They're supposed to find it. Uh, and you know, you might say, well, good on them for actually going a little bit deeper, uh, and looking for more, uh, uh, you know, not just, uh, um, uh, code and things like this, but actually looking for names that are associated with programs. What we did find though, and this was, it was a little piece kind of in the story, and it subsequently has been reported out by some other reporters. What was very telling to us was, in the shadow brokers dump, you know, of course, the, what got a lot of attention was the the, the exploits that were published in, in that leak. Uh, there were also manuals, which are believed to be internal, essentially guidebooks that operators at NSA were using in various uh, contexts that were also leaked. And now investigators have determined that they think Kaspersky was used to find those too. So that doesn't really—that's not an anti-malware operation. That that that's a, an information discovery. Well, you know. Hey, that's an intelligence I, if, if I were, if, uh, if I were uh, uh, Kaspersky's lawyers, which I'm not, uh, I might say, if I'm trying to find malware, having the manual for the guy who wrote the malware is pretty damn useful. Yeah. Uh, but you're, you're you're extracting stuff from one of your customers' uh, hard drives without his and consent. And then, then it ends up on the Internet from some, some yeah. mysterious, mysterious <laughs> hacker group, which made everyone... Uh, a little puzzled, uh, but you know, it's it's it was a, a fascinating kind of also to try to get into the 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 internal policy deliberations that went on here because you had this one group, largely in the Obama administration towards the end, that was on the pretty much in the intelligence community that was deeply suspicious of Kaspersky, truly believed that it was knowingly being used and wanted to hammer company, them. And wanted to hammer them for it. And then, you know, people in the White House saying, well, hold on a second. Are we going to really sanction a company that is selling its product at a Best Buy? Uh, what's the implication going to be for American technology companies if we do that? And this got taken up at the end of the Obama administration and the whole kind of basket of deliberations that officials were having over whether and how to sanction Russia for election meddling. Right. Uh, there was no indication that Kaspersky was used in that, but they were looking for ways to hurt Russia and hurt its cyber And even in that circumstance, they couldn't bring themselves to go after Kaspersky. Yeah, this really sounds like the, Na- the uh, National Economic Council uh, run amok. Uh, I, 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 Brian, I won't ask you to com- Well, I will ask you to comment. Uh, I, it sounds like there was a fight over sanctions that just metastasized into a fight over sanctions no matter who was proposing what sanctions. Yeah, I, I can't comment on any specifics, <laughs> but I, it's, it would not be unusual to consider the economic consequences alongside everything else when you're thinking about a sanctions action. Right. So, I mean, think about the other Russia sanctions involving American oil companies. Uh, economic considerations were very much a part of those deliberations. But really, you know, the, 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 the Russian market, it's about the size of Belgium, for God's sake. I mean, you know, they could they could cut us off and we wouldn't notice. But I think it's also, I mean, there, there's a lot of debate at the time, and there's a lot of debate going back to the time, you know, at Homeland Security, all the way back to, you know, the beginning about what is the role of the government in getting involved at that level of a commercial decision. And that, un, you know, it's, it's an, it was a surprising amount of inertia behind that concept that regardless of the security imperative we just can't 
engage in the market in that way. Well, and it's fair to say, I mean, uh, there still isn't a interagency decision to sanction them. Uh, the, this was just the Department of Homeland Security said, well, we'll issue our first binding directive uh, and take it out, uh, which is, you know, uh, there's a lot of that in the Trump administration, I think. If you can, if you plausibly have the authority to do it yourself, um, going the, to the interagency is not particularly appealing in this, uh, in this White House. And that was a, you know, that was a bold move on the department's part. I mean, yeah. Right. I also think it's worth noting, I made, our sources told us that they don't think that would have happened absent Senator Shaheen pushing this issue herself, where she was putting language into the Defense Authorization Act. It was right. also going to penalize Kaspersky. Um, but, you know, but that, that does not to detract from the fact that when DHS blacklisted that company, I mean, that's a very significant action. And it was interesting, it was predated about two days earlier, Best Buy made the decision to pull Kaspersky off of the shelves, yeah. which we didn't uh, get into a lot in the story. But the reaction on the part of the, the retail industry has been pretty dramatic as well. I mean, there there are stores where you used to be able to buy Kaspersky and you can't buy it there anymore. Uh, and these are companies that we know communicate with DHS and with the Bureau through the ISAC process. So clearly word was being put out uh, to the big box stores saying, you know, the government thinks that this is uh, software that we're certainly not going to use and maybe you want to think about whether you want to sell it. Uh, Nick, um, I, 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 this is your opportunity to explain how we've gotten the technology wrong in this context. Uh, uh, so I want to uh, make sure you have time to, to, to correct all our errors, if there are any. Actually, it's the uh, that as the technologist, I have a question of why Kaspersky software was ever allowed on U.S. government computers in the first place. <laughs> that um, it's just a simple matter of basic precautions. You don't give a adversary nation control over portions of your infrastructure. So Huawei, I'll buy it for my own use, no problem. Kaspersky, I'll buy it for my own use, no problem. There's no way that stuff should be within 10 meters of a government system. So, um, but what's, the, but what's the limiting principle of that? And who's the arbiter? So, I mean, well, isn't that DHS, yeah, that D- has DHS the... is happy to say, you know, we are. Well, in this instance. Right. But but for every... A, for... A, a good principle is if it's Five Eyes or NATO-controlled uh, company, sure. If it's a uh, Russian or Chinese-controlled company, no way in hell. <laughs> and, you know, Nick, to, to Dick's point, I mean, one of the things that was kind of startling to us as we reported this, is we found that warnings, official warnings, internal kind of IC channel warnings, and from the Pentagon about Kaspersky were going back as far as 2004. Um, you know, this is something that's been on the radar for a long time. And one of the central questions of our reporting was, you know, why did this take so long uh, to actually rise to the level where the government was going to say, at the very least, like, we're not going to use on our systems. And we should note, too, the NSA does not use this. And, right. we, and we've reported previously NSA advised its employees not to put it on their home computers either. So there, there were, you know, the, the places where you would expect that there would be skepticism. But then there were 22, I think, agencies that were authorized to use Kaspersky. So, uh, you know, we're, this is a... So here's my answer to your question. I, <laughs> the government's not one entity. Ira Magaziner, I, it, who no one has heard of, but I, you know, he was a friend of mine, and he wrote a profoundly um, influential, or at least a, a report that summed up the zeitgeist 
particularly well in the late 90s for the Clinton administration about this area, uh, uh, that the technology is so wonderful, we should embrace it, and it should be global, open, borderless, uh, and anything that introduces borders and the nasty old empire of meat and steel stuff uh, is inherently suspect. And so when people came in and said, hey, you know, the Russians are going to take us to the cleaners, they said, oh, you're such a crypto-nationalist or something, you know, <laughs> uh, practically a racist. Uh, I, uh, and I think that was the the instinct of yeah. folks for right, really right up until very recently. This is, this is the dark side of procurement reform and reinventing government, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I remember assuming a similar analogy after 9-11 when the mantra in the intelligence community switched from need to know to need to share. Uh, we got to push the information, the classified information out to the end of the network, down to the guy on the ground, and people warning at the time, like, okay, but, you know, the attendant risk of that is if you do it, you create the potential for people to have information and to disseminate it in ways they shouldn't <laughs> enter Chelsea Manning. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting to see how concerns that maybe people had in the late 1990s about this, which were dismissed at the time, and we fast forward, and there appear to be some pretty real-life examples of it happening. Yeah, uh so the Russians, meanwhile, are um, not the least bit deterred by this, maybe probably because the, uh, Kaspersky was always a little arm's length with them, one suspects. Uh, uh, Kaspersky himself probably wasn't enthusiastic about becoming a tool of uh, Russian intelligence. doesn't mean his people weren't. Uh, um, but uh, uh, the GRU is... Uh, trying to get into the Senate, we're told. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the CIA has announced that the GRU was behind not Petya. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, what's your sense about the political will to do something more about this? And so obviously they're not getting a hint. Yeah, I, mean, they're, they're, I don't know that there seems to be much of a political will to do anything about it. I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating to me, having covered for the past year and really even before the, the election, uh, the Russian meddling uh, from 2016, is there's been this, you know, pounding of fists on tables from officials and lawmakers of the Russians are coming back, they're going to get us again. Uh, but what is the solution to that? I mean, the midterms are now 10 months away. Um, you, in, the, in the case you mentioned of uh, the GRU trying to get into the Senate, um, the Senate's not just a political organization, it's a governmental organization as well. So you're not seeing a, you know, a lowering of ambition or activity, it seems to me, on the part of the Russians. And this was a fairly recent attempt. Um, so where is the political will to do something prior to the November elections? I mean, if it's there, if there is activity in that space, it's not very visible. And you would imagine that the government would want to be going to great lengths to reassure people uh, that we're doing something about this and we're getting ready and we know they're out there and we're watching the bad guys. Uh, we're not seeing it. So, Brian, I'm going to put you on the spot with the, my latest uh, harebrained idea for uh, sticking it to uh, Russian uh, cyber warriors, mm -hmm. uh, um, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, uh, for which you had some considerable responsibility at state. Uh, um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act allows companies to sue governments if they commit torts in the United States against the company or against an, indiv an individual. Um, and um, I would have thought that hacking a company 
uh, in the United States was a tort in the United States. You, you break into their computer, you steal the data that's on their uh, computer system in the United States. It feels like a tort in the United States. I noticed that NotPetya cost one company, Maersk, $300 million. It cost Merck about the same. It cost FedEx about the same. Three companies, it's practically a billion dollars. Um, you would think that uh, the prospect of getting sued for that kind of activity would uh, produce a certain amount of restraint on the part of the GRU. Uh, um, and I'm disappointed to report that in a case involving Ethiopian hackers of human rights activists, the D.C. Circuit, which has yet to see a Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act case that it likes, um, <laughs> said, oh, you might think that the tort occurred in the United States since the poor guy who was attacked was in the United States, but the malware was written in Ethiopia or Italy <laughs> or someplace, and therefore the complete tort didn't occur in the United States, so now get out of here, it, the, the exception doesn't apply. Um, how bad would it be if Congress said, uh, you know, when you're talking about cyber attacks, the tort is committed in the United States if the victim is here and so is the data that is extracted? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the tort exception was designed for traffic accidents involving embassy employees in Washington or New York. Uh, and so I don't think the D.C. Circuit was out in left field in the Ethiopia case. Um, I, Congress has certainly shown an appetite for expanding the exceptions to sovereign immunity and foreign official immunity, most recently in JASTA passed uh, late 2016. Um, I think one thing that the executive branch always thinks about is the reciprocal implications of those limitations uh, because, of course, the U.S. benefits from these things almost more than anybody. So, uh, so we could get sued, so, especially as the equation group becomes more uh, popularly well-known. That's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, if uh, you could imagine the Defense Department, the intelligence community not being so crazy about such an expansion to the exceptions to sovereign immunity. Uh, but it's I, not out of the realm of possibility. Right. I, I, and, and I can't help thinking that what the D.C. Circuit said would apply to traffic accidents, too. If the, uh, if the GRU calls up their guy in Washington and says, take a Mercedes out of the motor pool and run Brian Egan over, I, uh, then they would say, oh, well, I mean, the instrumentality came from Germany, and the intent was formed in Moscow. Uh, how can we say that a complete tort occurred in the United States? <laughs> the fetus was from a hospital in Moscow. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's probably some ends to the uh, the analysis there. All right. So I, uh, you, you're seeing then, uh, uh, Shane, not much in the way of likely action between now and the election. I mean, if we're talking about Kaspersky, no. I mean, well, I mean, that was sort of mentioned, but I mean, I'm not detecting what the sort of the concerted effort is on the part of Homeland Security to, for instance, ready states voter databases or to raise They're doing awareness. something. They, they have said that they, they're now consulting with everybody. They expect to have done a com- complete evaluation, you know, such as it is. I mean, well, I guess the question, I mean, is, is so if the intelligence community's assessment now roughly a year ago 
what to, to borrow their language, and I may not get it verbatim, was a Russian-led effort to undermine the Western-led liberal order, mm-hmm. which is a pretty dramatic statement. Um, you know, you would imagine that you know more than sort of standard assessments and advisories are kind of are called for here. This is, you know, former intelligence officials like Mike Morell and I think Mike Hayden too have called this, you know, the equivalent of 9/11 in our political system. And so far as it exposed a vulnerability that not enough people appreciated, and now there's a whole of government response that is required to shore up and patch that vulnerability. I don't see what the whole of government response is. Not saying it's not happening, and it's certainly something that I think, you know, personally I would like to see, I will look into, and I'd like the Post to look into as well. That's a huge question. I mean, we're staring down at the midterms now, and every expert, every, you know, lawmaker who's concerned about this is warning, here it comes again. Um, If this really is you know, a 9-11 style event. I mean, what's the explanation for just watching as it all happens uh, again in real time? It, it, it seems well, nothing, unacceptable. N- nothing would galvanize uh, the Trump administration more at, uh, to the need to investigate uh, interference in the 2018 election like the House switching. <laughs> then they'd say, whoa. <laughs> the Democrats won because the Russians hacked the elections. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe they'll finally wake them up. So, um, yeah. And in fact, that's what I worry about. That if I'm Putin, I'd be going for Bannonite crazies in the primaries on both sides and then trying to flip things to the Democrats. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think that is the, the, that would be the plan. You know, Whoever is out gets support, uh, and the farther out they are, the better. So Kaspersky brought a lawsuit. I should uh, at least touch on this uh, against the Department of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. right. uh, uh, claiming it's basically a standard APA uh, claim, uh, Administrative Procedure Act claim, that it was uh, um, arbitrary and capricious and inconsistent with law, and that it didn't give them due process. Uh, I, I have to say it. it doesn't sound like the most plausible lawsuit. Uh, uh, they didn't say, you know, Kaspersky is evil, don't touch him. Right. They just said, we're not going to buy him. And uh, um, that's in many ways equivalent to saying, I don't want to give you a security clearance. Why? Because I'm not absolutely sure that you're reliable. Uh, that's not to say you aren't, but uh, I'm not going to give it to you. And that's you know, the courts have uphold, held those decisions against some, you know, very sad cases, uh, um, because letting the courts get in and uh, apply their, uh, more probable than not standards is not a recipe for protecting national security. Right. And there's, you know, a, behind the Homeland Security Department's designation, there is, you know, classified information about why they arrived at this conclusion. I mean, it's interesting for for Kaspersky to say it was capricious and arbitrary. It was anything but capricious and arbitrary. I mean, this is something that was decided, you know, over time. There was a lot of research, a lot of analysis that went into it. I mean, stuff that we're not entirely privy to, obviously, either. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of, you know, hope for this lawsuit. I mean, would they want to get reinstated? And what's the idea then that, like, people are going to certainly start rushing to buy Kaspersky for their agency again? I mean, it's I mean, I get that they're doing it, but, you know, I think the company knows full well that there's more to what the department did than it's showing publicly. 
Yeah, and I, probably their nightmare is the government selectively declassifies a bit of it and says, oh, well, sure. you, you know, uh, we, we can give you this much information. How do you like that? And, and would there be a discovery <laughs> process, too, where the government would get to like, <laughs> look at Kaspersky's files? Maybe. That's Wouldn't right. That's right. Well, all, those files have been nuked from orbit. Right. <laughs> Ripley Project again. So, uh, Shane, last question. Uh, you're, uh, you're moving to the Washington Post. Long history of doing the kinds of work that you do, the deep national security dives uh, um, and uh, plenty of reporters who have their own set of sources. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Do you have an idea what you're going to be focusing on? I think in the near term it's probably a couple of big targets. Obviously the the Russia investigation is still Mm -hmm. a a huge concern uh, both politically and for the national security teams and I think we view it kind of through both of those lenses plus the law enforcement sort of you know judicial aspects of it. Uh, But you know there are as we've talked internally, you know, there are lots of other things that are going on in the intelligence community, that, which is going to be my real kind of, you know, focus such that there is one. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we're a year into the Trump administration, and I, there hasn't really been a whole lot of reporting, I think, on how is the IC operating under Trump or, you know, uh, what's going on in Iran with regards to its cyber forces. I mean, there's been a lot on North Korea and the mm-hmm. politics of that. There are all these really big kind of huge, meaty intelligence and national security-related topics that I'm personally interested in digging into. So I'll be part of the national security team and pitching in with, you know, my expertise and sources, you know, as we do things collaboratively. But when it comes to my real kind of sweet spots, I think it's going to be intel and uh, this sort of uh, – uh, spooky cyberland where cyber crashes into national security. So you hack Target, you know, don't call me. You know, you uh, you hack uh, a government agency, you know, pick up the phone, give me a ring. So I, let me ask, this, this is a journalism question. I, um, you obviously have a set of sources that you've talked to or and an approach to getting stories that are at least partially classified. Um, and you take those with you. Is, 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 is that what um, the Washington Post is hiring you plus your stable? Yeah, I mean, this is that, this is how journalistic organizations operate, right? You're, you're buying the report, buying the reporter and his or her accesses and experience and expertise. It's really interesting because, because what that says is to become a national security reporter requires a substantial investment early to, to establish yeah. credibility and to get people to actually talk to you and then make them feel they won't get burned and uh, to produce re- stories that people think are big stories. But once that investment's made, that credibility and that set of contacts, which of course you have to keep up, um, is the reporter's personal property, mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, uh, and so um, it suggests that the real suckers in this game are the guys who first hired you to do this work. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> They're making the early investment knowing that it's going to pay off for someone else, right? <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, there's not, uh, there are not non-competes that we sign in journalism. Uh, you know, the intellectual property that is my sources and things that I've reported on uh, is mine and not necessarily the organization I work for. They hold a copyright over the written words. And you get into some areas here, too, where, you know, if you – yeah, there was a famous case when Matthew Cooper was a reporter, I think, for Time or was it Newsweek, and you know, and he was subpoenaed to reveal a source, and he didn't want to do it, and ultimately the company made that decision for him, and they said, well, the notes and the reporting that you've generated on these stories actually does more belong to us, and we'll make that decision for you. But 
when you're talking about somebody switching organizations, yeah, you're taking that experience and those connections with you, which is not always a, a for you know for places like where I started out, you know, Government Executive Magazine many many years ago, which gave me the opportunity to become an intelligence reporter. They, they should be asking for royalties, right? Like, come on, man! You know, yeah. like to remind everybody that you know they're the, this is where it started, but uh, you know. Well, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, this is why you should be giving him about 1% of your current fortune uh, uh, because he, he, he brings to it uh, massive investment by people who are not Jeff Bezos. Uh, all right, uh, Shane Harris, thank you very much. Great Thanks, story. We're looking to forward to uh, uh, more of the same. Uh, Alan Cohn, Brian Egan, Nick Weaver, thank you all. This has been Episode 198 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, be sure to send us uh, recommendations for interview uh, uh, subjects and if we get them on the show we will send you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug which we have for Shane, don't oh, we? Yes, there we go. All right. you. I didn't even have to suggest any guests. <laughs> so uh, send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Tim Moore talking about his new book on cyber mercenaries, among other guests. Uh, we hope you'll join us for that and other programs as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.